Hi, this is Debbie Levine speaking. I'm the Senior Deputy Editor for the Journal Radiology, and I'm also here with Dr. Herb Kressel, who is the Editor-in-Chief of Radiology. This is part two of our podcast discussing um, the recent controversy over the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force guidelines on mammography. Participating in the discussion are doctors Kalanj and Harris, who are representing the views of the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force. We also have Dr. Copians, who wrote an opposing view for this commentary uh, that's being published in our journal this month. We have Drs. Berlin and Hall, who wrote an editorial on this topic, published in May, Radiology. Dr. Thrall is here, representing the American College of Radiology. And we also have Dr. Flyer, a prominent internist in Boston. We have more extensive introductions of our speakers in part one of this podcast. Part one discussed the general uh, changes in the wording of the task force recommendations since they were published. We also discussed how these recommendations have been received by patients in addition to the role of societal versus individual perspective regarding these recommendations. Finally, in part one, we discussed the openness of the process of how these recommendations were derived. We'll now continue on with part two of the podcast. So, um, Dr. Harris, this question is uh, written for you, and that is um, one criticism that's been raised about uh, the methodology is that there's pretty much a sliding scale of benefits of screening mammography with respect to age, but this sliding scale is disregarded if you use an absolute start point for screening, such as the age of 50. And I was wondering if you could comment on using 50 as a threshold for screening. Well, one of the reasons we use 50 is that that's the way some of the studies have been categorized. But I should say that um, the task force says before every single recommendation that, um, and I can just read it to you, that it rec- USPSTF recognizes that clinical or policy di- uh, divisions decisions involve more uh, considerations than this body of evidence alone clinicians and policymakers should understand the evidence but individualize decision-making to the specific patient or situation. Uh, And so there's no question but that gradually benefits increase as mortality increases. So the absolute benefit uh, increases and harms change too as time goes along. So that's the reason for the need for discussion, whatever the age. I totally agree with Dr. Copan. On the other hand, the benefits seem to increase in the 50s and 60s relative to the 40s in terms of absolute numbers. And so the, that's the reason the task force is stating something to primary care physicians. One might be uh, more encouraging of women to be screened in their 50s and 60s and in their 40s uh, really allow a full discussion and uh, people should uh, make their own decisions. And what do you think of the criticism that many of the studies that were used for the modeling were underpowered to show a benefit in the younger age group? Do you accept that criticism? Well, I don't think so because I think, um, you know, given all, there are what are seven or eight studies now, including the age study now of women, they started off with women 40 and 41. Um, So we, we have a large number of women now who have been randomized in that younger age group. So I think that we, I, I, I think that, that we do know pretty well uh, about what the uh, uh, benefits are in terms of lives extended. Uh, you know, there have been enough randomized trials and enough women now that I, 
I don't think that's the issue. It used to be the issue some years ago. We used to debate that. But now I think we have a pretty good sense about what those numbers are, and the issue is just how to value them, as other people have said. Dr. Copans, do you want to comment on this? Well, yes, thank you. Um, first of all, a, a point that the task force didn't address, you know, you're talking about absolute uh, numbers. Of course, the incidence of breast cancer goes up with increasing age steadily with nothing changing at the age of 50 uh, or any other age for that matter. Menopause, which people, um, the age of 50 was initially used as a surrogate for menopause. Uh, there's no data that show that uh, any of the screening parameters change with menopause. So the the use of age 50 uh, is just totally not supported by the science. Furthermore, uh, you can look at absolute numbers of benefits, but years of life saved, over 40% of the years of life saved come from women who are diagnosed in their 40s, and that wasn't taken into account uh, by the task force. Uh, I think we need to, number one, get away from using an artificial threshold that's not supported by science. A 49-year-old woman is statistically no different from a 51-year-old woman and so on. You can slide that up and down the scale. Uh, and that's what's created, I think, a lot of the confusion to make it appear that something happens at 50 when it doesn't. And you can say that the absolute number of women uh, or, or lives that are saved increases with age, but it also depends on how many women are at that age. Uh, and in fact, if there are a lot of women in their 40s, the fact that the incidence is lower is maybe real, but it also ignores the fact that there may be more cancers in women in their 40s simply because the absolute number is larger. That happened, for example, in 1995, and I suspect if we looked at the absolute numbers now, we'd see that the number of women diagnosed with breast cancer in their 40s is very close to the number of women diagnosed in their 50s. For the uh, task force members and also Dr. Flyer, because um, I'm concerned about um, the amount of time that patients will have with their primary care physicians to discuss this topic. Our research suggests that the actual physician-patient time is probably less than 10 minutes in the average uh, primary care visit. Uh, when will women actually have time to discuss these issues with their doctors? So one important thing to point out is that there are a number of studies going on right now about what we call decision aids. These are, uh, it's not just, by the way, an issue for breast cancer screening, but for colon cancer screening and prostate cancer screening and a number of other issues as well. But there are ways in which one can, uh, and, and people are, developing decision aids that people, that patients can then see and view before the doctor visit, which decreases the time and improves the patient's understanding. So I think that we shouldn't give up the idea of trying to have the patient understand, but we should just find creative ways to do it better. Dan, uh, in your essay, uh, you don't seem to sort of pay a lot of attention to the results of the computer models that the task force has used and seem to focus instead on the studies, uh, the individual studies that were reported in the literature. And since all multicenter trials have some limitations, why not rely on the models which can better deal with these than uh, reviewing the individual studies? Well, that's an important question, Herb, and I think where computer models really are most valuable is when you don't have direct data. Uh, you don't know where the hurricane is going to hit until after it hits, so you have computer models that try and uh, tell you where it's going to hit. In the situation of breast cancer screening, we have excellent data that come from the Netherlands and Sweden, 
that the task force either didn't seem to know about or certainly didn't talk about that clearly shows that when you introduce screening into the population, the death rate goes down commensurate to the, and in proportion to the number of women being screened. And in Sweden, the death rate uh, for women screening beginning at age 40 has dropped by over 40%. The task force uh, chose to use a 15% decrease in deaths, which they derived from randomized controlled trials, which for people who understand how these trials are done, underestimate the benefit. At, at the minimum, the task force should have said, well, there's a range of benefits, but to use computer models, which are completely controlled by the algorithm that's designed and the assumptions that are made, uh, and can come out with any answer that you design into it, and ignore direct data that show that uh, twice as many lives, if you will, are saved in real life, uh, is hard to justify. Dr. Kalange, I think this is an important point, and I, I would really like your view. I, I uh, intuitively, I, I do understand why why models would be useful, but I think it'd be helpful for the discussion for you to uh, describe their role and importance. Well, the, the task force is relatively young in its use of modeling, and to be honest, uh, the issues uh, that we look for modeling isn't to make an overall recommendation, but help inform us about issues where we do think the data are incomplete. So periodicity, we don't have a head-to-head trial of annual versus biennial screening. We just don't have that. And so modeling different trials can give us some views about the benefit of moving from one to the other. I think that the starting or stopping age is the other issue where you know, we came to the conclusion that mammography does provide mortality reduction benefit, and the modeling helped uh, us uh, specify what level of benefit that was and that with different ages. So that, that was really the piece of modeling. I, I do think it's important to point out that I fundamentally disagree with Dr. Copans around randomized control trials. The problem with observational studies, regardless of how you do them, is they introduce bias. And while there is a conservative estimate associated with a randomized controlled trial on, a, on an intent to screen basis, it provides the unbiased estimate of the underlying effect. Uh, Dr. Kopans, as Dr. Hall in Berlin point out in their editorial, uh, a number of other countries screen every year. Why should the USA be different? Every other year. Every, every other, other year. year. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, in fact, a lot of those countries are changing. The, the, the reason that countries, have, many countries, have adopted their screening policies is based on the financial issues. And, and those are real, and I, you know, I don't ignore those at all. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that's the best way to screen. It means that that's what they can do. In fact, we've been able to screen on an annual basis in this country, and uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, breaking the bank, certainly, and our deaths are down by 10 to 15,000 lives a year as a result. I'm not sure that we, you know, for example, the European countries back in the 1990s used uh, unplanned retrospective subgroup analysis of the randomized control trials, to which I think you were alluding uh, earlier, uh, Herb. Uh, they used totally unsupportable uh, science to tell their populations there was no benefit before the age of 50, when in fact the trials, when they were analyzed as they were designed, showed a clear benefit for screening beginning at 40. So I'm not sure that the, the countries that have a longer time between screens and limit the number of women 
being screened are necessarily the models that we want to follow. Uh, Dr. Hall, uh, want to respond to this? Well, I think this is a little bit of a blow, blow to some of the statisticians and other people using the same data that we're all talking about in Australia, Canada, you name it, almost to the European countries. And the great, great majority of these have chosen not to, to interpret the uh, data differently and come up with biennial starting at 50. And uh, they recognize, at least from my reading, they recognize that the benefit is not going to be quite as much as if you screened earlier, but they come up with these statisticians and these scientists and these researchers come up with a different formula. And it just goes back to what everyone is saying here, and that is that it just is not an open and closed uh, discussion. This, there's a lot of gray areas here. Uh, Drs. Hall in Berlin, in your editorial, you express the need for less politicization and a more scientifically driven, tempered discussion of the underlying issues. But if we look around uh, in healthcare, there's lots of evidence that there are benefits of sort of focused political action in healthcare issues. Are your concerns realistic? Is this an achievable goal? Well, first of all, let me just say this. Today's discussion really is it's a marvelous discussion. It's been thoughtful, intelligent, professional, logical, gentlemanly. People have voiced their opinions in a very professional manner which is a little different. Uh, I won't go into all the terms that were used uh, in our editorial, but the initial response to some of our radiological colleagues, on the other hand, were far more emotional and so forth. I won't go into disasters for women's health, uh, irresponsible, misleading, et cetera, et cetera. So today's exchange has been marvelous. Now, there's no question we're in a political area, and the fact of the matter is that uh, women, women do vote. And obviously, mammography, and, and none of us, none of us here is against mammography. We're all in favor of mammography screening. I think there's, we're, we're unanimous in that. And the fact of the matter is, however, politically, yes, we do have clout. We, the radiologists and the people who believe in mammography, have clout. And so therefore, yes, I think that uh, and the American College of Radiology does a wonderful job in getting the message across uh, to Congress. And I'm in favor of that. So yes, I think that this discussion, and I think some of the, uh, a lot of the publicity that surrounds the Preventive Services Task Force recommendations has been beneficial. I agree. Uh, Dr. Thrall, you must have thoughts about the best way to sort of combine science and advocacy. Well, in the course of this uh, conversation, we have learned that the USPSTF will have a more open process. So absent open process, which we did not have in this particular case, the American way is to embrace the political process. And that's what uh, people who are concerned with the original statement of the USPSTF statement on mammography screening uh, did, and I might say very effectively since uh, Congress uh, basically in the health reform legislation has said that the task force findings cannot be used as the basis of reimbursement decisions. Moreover, Senator Bitter has written to Secretary Sibelius requesting the task force report be removed from the AHRQ website. So uh, in this case, I think the flaws in the original process were such that it did mobilize a lot of political opposition, and that uh, opposition 
actually uh, held the day in some respects. Now, I hope we can get back to a more balanced process. So circling back around to Dr. Kalange, um, the USPSTF um, has stated uh, that this was this guideline was not intended to be used for coverage recommendations, but as mentioned by Dr. Thrall earlier in this podcast, there have been some insurance policy changes, and I went on the web and found um, the Avon Foundation for Women, who conducted an online survey back in February 2010. This included 151 breast cancer health educators and providers, and 24% of respondents reported a decrease in the number of women under age 50 being screened, but in addition, respondents from 25% of the states reported changes in breast cancer screening programs, either reducing or even eliminating mammography for women under 50. So even though that wasn't the stated intent, obviously this document has resulted in substantial changes in our U.S. policies, and I was wondering if you can comment on this. Well, I'd make a couple of points. I think, first of all, um, Dr. Thrall did point out that the Congress in recognizing, remember this issue about dropping coverage isn't a task force decision. That That is an issue that that uh, is unfortunately been written, or fortunately, I, I don't know how you look at it, has been written into the healthcare reform issue. And so uh, I think that that if you talk to the task force to a member, because I know we've had several conversations, we don't believe that the cost of a mammogram should be part, uh, the, the individual out-of-pocket costs of a mammogram should be part of the discussion and decision-making for a woman over 40 deciding whether or not to be screened. And that's, that's a policy issue, therefore not an evidence-based issue, and one that you know we can't say more strongly. So every time we talk to a reporter, every time we've, we talk in front of uh, the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, we've stated the exact same thing, that we believe that we, that, that economic force of I'm going to have to pay for this myself shouldn't be part of that informed decision making. It really should be, I understand this is my body, these are the benefits, these are the, the potential harms, and my decision will be supported by my clinician and my insurer. And, and the issue is how to make sure that statement gets out. The, the good news from my standpoint is that states that mandate mammography coverage continue to mandate it and that uh, Congress has answered this issue in the health care reform bill itself. Um, I'd just like to thank everybody so much for their participation in this podcast. I think we're all uh, very happy to hear that the task force will be using a more open process allowing for public comment in the future because I think that really will help everybody to understand the process better.